another episode of the State of Venezuela podcast. I'm your host, Rafael, and I want to thank you all for tuning in and continuing to support the show. We're off to a great start, and I can't wait to show you all what we have in store with this podcast. We are just getting started. This episode is focused on what Venezuela is most known for throughout the world, the economy. We're recording at a time when Venezuela has officially become the poorest country in the Americas. So how did it come to this? How did Venezuela plummet from Latin America's economic gold standard to nationwide abject poverty? To answer this question, I'm joined in this episode by Daniel Di Martino, a Venezuelan economist and research associate at the Institute for the Study of Free Enterprise at the University of Kentucky. As an economist, Daniel has some incredible insights into Venezuela's economy throughout the past two decades and some anecdotes from his own experience growing up with his family in Venezuela. So without further ado, this is the State of Venezuela podcast featuring Daniel DiMartino. My guest today is a Venezuelan activist and a research associate at the Institute for the Study of Free Enterprise at the University of Kentucky. He's published op-eds and articles for USA Today, The Federalist, The Washington Examiner, The Daily Wire, among others. He's made several different cable news appearances on CNN, Fox News, Fox Business to share his insights on Venezuela, and I'm happy to have him on here to do the same for all of you today. Daniel DiMartino, welcome to the State of Venezuela podcast. Hi, Rafael. Thank you for having me. So I want us to get started by having our listeners know a little bit more about your background. You were born in Venezuela in 1999, right? So right when Hugo Chavez actually started his first term as president. That's right. I was born in January 1999, so I'm 21 years old. And although I'm young, <laughs> I, I left Venezuela four years ago. So in, in 2016, at, at the age of 17, just when I finished high school and I came to study economics in the United States, thanks to a scholarship from my university in Indiana. And well, the whole reason I did that was because I saw firsthand how socialist policies destroyed Venezuela's economy and created hyperinflation shortages that I had to suffer myself. And that's what made me passionate about economics. And once I arrived to the United States, not only have I been active in research and uh, obviously in my own work as an economist, but I've also been outspoken in the media so that those that economic knowledge can reach the general public, right? Uh, I don't like that it's just concentrated into academic papers. I think that everybody needs to know about economics and why socialism fails. Absolutely. And I think your life experience is key to having people understand how that applies outside of the realm of economic theory, right? So with that, I want to talk about your upbringing. What was it like growing up in Venezuela for you? Well, um, I'm going to give you a, a bigger story then. I, I come from a family of immigrants too. My, my grandparents from my dad's side immigrated in the 1950s from Italy to, to Venezuela. I'm from my mom's side from Spain. And so they came without any kind of education. They didn't even have elementary education, my grandparents. You know, they barely knew how to read, basically, and count. And yet they were able to prosper in the Venezuela of the 20th century. 
Uh, they were able to start their own businesses. They were able to get jobs. They were able to send immense amounts of money back to their families in Europe who were starving to death. But as I grew up, I saw a very different Venezuela. Uh, my parents, when I was young, made you know a considerable sum of money. They made thousands of dollars per month, which was not as uncommon in Venezuela back then in the late 90s and the early 2000s. We owned a gas station. And so when Chavez nationalized fin or finished nationalizing oil that, you know, they took all the gas stations from their owners, mm -hmm. we kept managing our gas station, which was originally in a contract with British Petroleum. Uh, and now we were in a contract with PDVSA, the state-owned company. But this time, because the government regulated prices, we were starting not to make money at all. And so they, we just lived off the government subsidies for gas station owners. And that's how the gas subsidies uh, worked in Venezuela until recently. And so we went from making thousands of dollars to hundreds of dollars to just a couple of dollars per day. And that's why, you know, my lifestyle drastically changed from being young and going on vacations and not having to worry about money to having to worry about what I purchase or making lines for food and making lines for medicine. It was a drastic change of lifestyle. Yeah, there's actually something in your writings that I want you to tell us a little bit more about. In one of your articles, you said that the first time you couldn't buy food at the grocery store was when you were 15 years old. So that would have been a year before you left, right? Uh, that's right. A year before I left. Okay. So tell us a little bit more about that. Like what was going through your mind having to go through a situation where I think it was you noticing that you had forgotten your ID that day and without it, you weren't able to receive a food subsidy, right? That's right. And it was not the only time, actually. It happened way often. I mean, what can you expect from a 16-year-old to, to have his ID all the time? I didn't even drive, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and to be expected that I need my ID to buy food or drugs in the supermarket it, or, you know, toothpaste, it's ridiculous uh, for, for a kid, right? Or a teenager. So I, I forgot it many times. And I, you know, the rationing system back then worked by not letting people go to the supermarket based on their ID number. And because my ID number, my, my cellula, my, my number of the national ID, ended in the number one, just like my dad's, we could only go to the supermarket on Mondays and Saturdays for more than a year. It was like that. Uh, and my mom, I don't remember in what number she ended, but it was on a different day of the week. And so every time my dad went to the supermarket, I had to go with him because we had the same number. And I constantly forgot my ID. And that meant that I couldn't buy food that day. And we had to wait for, you know, for the weekend. And it was a whole mess. I also remember when I had to start putting my, my fingerprint to go in the rationing system. And it was such a feeling of lack of control of not, not being able to, to change your situation or being oppressed that they're, you know, rationing your food or rationing when you can enter a supermarket based on your fingerprint to verify your identity. It's ridiculous. I felt such a violation of my rights. And I remember, I remember uh, this lady, I told her, you know, I'm not going to do this. And then she's like, you have to do it, uh, the, the cashier. And I just told her, okay. And I just spit on my finger and I put the, my fingerprint on the, on the reader like that. <laughs> Oh my gosh, that's yeah, that, that's awfully brave. I, I don't know if you'd be able to get away with that today. Yeah, well, you know, and the worst thing is that these are private businesses too. Like this was in a private supermarket. They bend to the government. 
And in my opinion, it's ridiculous. I think it either they're, you know, just owned by government, what we call files. They might be owned by a corrupt official, uh, so they're not really private. Or they're private and they're afraid, so they bend, which is stupid because they're going to go for them anyway. So you better stand up to them. Yeah, it seems like if you are not bought out or expropriated by the government after a certain point, then in the meantime, you end up having to abide by whatever whatever measures they implement, right? So it's sort of like a system of patronage, you can almost say. Yes, Venezuela is definitely a system of patronage. Um, it's definitely a system of, you know, the government is controlled by gangs and they divide the spoils of the resources, right? Some people control the natural resources, some one specific natural resource, oil. Other people control the mines. Other people control the food distribution business so that they can exploit us, the regular citizens, others, the gasoline distribution. And that's how they distribute the spoils and maintain the loyalty of the people who have the weapons, the collectivos and the military. Yeah, that's unbelievable. You are, you're absolutely right in how you're describing it. I want to go back one second to your upbringing. What would you say if it wasn't this specific incident at the supermarket, what would you say was maybe the moment where you and your family decided we got to get out of here. There's no way we can do this anymore. The moment that really changed my mind over everything that was going on really was the, the light bulb that showed me that Venezuela was destroyed by socialist policies and that this is not just, you know, some cause of nature or that we're unlucky or that it's just, mis you know, any other reason that it was socialism was when I read this book by Milton Friedman, Free to Choose. Um, and it was in my school library. Uh, I was just looking for books about economics because I was interested, I was curious, and I found that one. I was lucky to find it in Spanish. And I read it, and I'm like, he described what was going on in the Soviet Union back in his time. He described other socialist countries. And I see price controls, and I see hyperinflations because of currency printing, and I see excessive welfare programs, and I see everything that was going on in Venezuela. And then I think... Okay, so we're not the first one to try it, right? They, these people literally did the same and had the same results. Two plus two is four, right? Mm -hmm. Very easy to, to connect the dots. And, and that's what really encouraged me to learn more about economics and get inspired by, by the ideas of liberty. I was the first one in my family to really want to, in my close family, to really want to go. Uh, I'm, and I'm the one who pressured my parents to leave the country. And I think it was the best decision they've ever made in their lives, to be honest, because I, I don't see, and I didn't see then, and I don't see now, unfortunately, Venezuela changing for the better uh, because of a host of reasons. Yeah, I think you guys definitely made it out in time. And really, when you look at the numbers that come out today, it shows more and more that the people who were able to get out are very lucky to have done so in time. because. Maybe you've already seen this, uh, Daniel, but for our listeners, there's a national study of living conditions that comes out every year that's put out by the Andres Bello Catholic University in Caracas. And before we start talking about Venezuela's economy today, I really want our audience to hear some of the results from this year's national survey that was published just yesterday, as of recording, of course. So... The number of Venezuelan households that experience multidimensional poverty, which takes into account things like income, education, public services, is 64.8%. The number of Venezuelans living in extreme poverty right now 
it could be much worse because of COVID, 79.3%. That means four out of every five Venezuelans right now has no way to pay for basic goods like food and water. And here's the worst part. When measured just by income levels, 96% of the population lives in poverty. 96%. As an economist, Daniel, I ask you, how, how did it come to this? How do we go from being the richest country in Latin America to 96% of the population living in poverty? Yeah, it's, it's truly a, a huge shame. And it shows that no matter how rich you are, no matter how many natural resources you have, bad economic policy from the government will always uh, be negative and nobody is safe from it. And specifically in this case, it's socialist policies. Many people want to say it's corruption. Many people want to say it's because it's a criminal drug dealing government. And while it's true that it's corrupt and, dro- and, and ruled by drug dealers, you know, Rafael, there's many other governments in the world that are ruled by drug dealers and are corrupt, right? Iran is a, is a terrible terrorist regime. The people in Iran are not suffering the economic conditions of the people of Venezuela. The people of Saudi Arabia, which is a, you know, a totalitarian regime, very corrupt, ruled by a monarchy, uh, they're not suffering the economic conditions of Venezuela. Colombia itself is very corrupt. Most Latin American countries are rife with corruption, but they're not dying of starvation in the street or eating from the trash every, in every corner, which is what's happening in Venezuela. So what's different in our country? is that the government implemented a set of policies that have historically and will always continue to fail. These are price controls. So they cap the prices of goods sold by private stores, which means they have no profit and therefore no incentive to produce, which means they don't hire workers and which means prices go up and there's black markets and there's more corruption and you know less goods available and there's lines of people to buy food, which, you know, it also, it's a chain effect, right? There's lines of people, they work less, everything gets worse. Uh, that's one of the policies. The other one is the currency control that Chavez implemented, Cadivi initially. This is something that Venezuela had in the past, but Chavez brought back and did it to, to a, a much uh, larger extent and, and kept it for a longer time and overvalued the currency for to a much greater degree. Mm-hmm. This just meant a lot of government spending in a subsidy for imports and, and to, for tourism of Venezuelans abroad, which bankrupted the nation and meant he had to print more money and create more inflation. So a policy that was supposed to reduce inflation by reducing the cost of imports actually led to more money printing and more inflation and more poverty, which, you know, talk about unintended consequences. And the other policy that I identify as one of the big reasons is nationalizations. Perhaps this is the biggest of all. There is no way any company can start in Venezuela without the risk of being taken over by the government. Chavez took thousands, tens of thousands of hectares of of land, agricultural land. And I've talked about this before, but I remember the gas station that my grandparents owned was in La Victoria, in Aragua, Aragua State. And we lived in Caracas for most of our time. So we had to drive between Caracas and La Victoria, which was, you know, I don't know, two hours, something like that. And in the way, it's Ron Santa Teresa, if you're familiar. Mm-hmm. And next to Ron Santa Teresa, which is a rum producer, so a lot of sugarcane, there was a lot of land that was also for sugarcane, corn, and other agricultural products. Chavez nationalized it because they, he said that it wasn't productive. And what ended up happening was that they put this huge sign that says, made in socialism, hecho en socialismo, and a huge heart. And the place is empty. 
It's empty. It's greenhouses with nothing. Why do you need a greenhouse in Aragua? Do you know how hot is there? You don't need greenhouses to, to produce sugarcane. Um, it's, it's ridiculous. And that's what happens with central planning. Socialism doesn't work because the government doesn't have the incentive to produce like you and I do because we want to make money. The government doesn't want to make money. They want to make votes. And not only that, you can just see that general incompetence when you have such a massive brain drain that your nation's best and brightest doctors, lawyers, politicians, those who are suited for the job, who would be at the top of any professional hierarchy, end up leaving the country. And so you leave people who are, I mean, really the best way to put it is incompetent. You look at what's going on in the central bank. The central bank, from what I understand, was politicized after Maduro came into power and he's used it as a printing machine. From what I understand, the minimum wage has been increased at least 30 times in Maduro's tenure, right? That's the other policy that's been very dam damaging. Uh, it's just not as damaging as the other three, but this one is terrible and I've talked about it. And it's the, you know, countless increases in the minimum wage since Chavez came to power. And well, he also created this huge culture around people actually believing that raising the minimum wage was good, which is not true. And so most people make minimum wage in Venezuela in any official job. And you see how a janitor makes the same as a college professor or a doctor in Venezuela. Th that's the equality that we got to, right? It's equality in poverty. That's why you see 96% income poverty in Venezuela. Yeah, you know, we might have more equality. We're just equally poor. And the only people who are rich are the corrupt elite. So that's what socialism brought, not capitalism. And not only that, but the newly printed money from all the um, the minimum wage hikes that, that Maduro and his people kept implementing didn't help and they didn't increase productivity, right? Because in the Venezuelan economy, almost everything at this point is imported and has been imported to Venezuela since, I want to say, 2013, right about when Maduro started. And because of all of those expropriations that you talked about, Daniel, most private businesses in these key industries were either shut down or they left the country. So that meant that there were very few non-state enterprises available to provide an independent means of production of goods. So again, that goes back to that concept of central planning that you were talking about that's incompetent in the long run, right? Yeah. So and I have to say several things about this. One is that the way I explain people in simple terms what the Venezuelan regime did to the economy is that they basically took away everything that is produced inside, they destroyed it, then they restricted what you can bring inside the country, so they restricted imports, and what's the result? Everybody starves inside the, the, the area where they restricted production, and that's what's happening. Uh, that's, that's a simpler way to put it. But regarding inflation, it's not just Maduro. This is a problem that comes from Chavez. Mm -hmm. uh, he's the one who, who destroyed the central bank. Uh, and inflation was not low with Hugo Chavez. You know, It was actually on average 20, 30% per year, which is huge. The United States has never experienced 20% inflation in a single year. The most Americans have ever experienced was in the 1970s when it reached 13%, which would be a joke and an achievement in Venezuela. <laughs> And here, people, you know, were protesting. It led to a huge economic crisis, and that's why Ronald Reagan was elected after Jimmy Carter. And, you know, everything was fixed after that because of good actions by the Federal Reserve. But in Venezuela, we don't have an independent central bank, and that's what we would need. But in reality, perhaps in the long term, what we will need to solve it is just, you know, completely eliminate the central bank and just have the dollar as, as currency. 
You know, unfortunately, some developing countries are just not to be trusted with currency and because you might always elect somebody like Chavez again. And Ecuador is the example, right? Rafael Correa was not able to destroy Ecuador's economy because Ecuador depended on the U.S. dollar. So he could not print money and destroy the the economy with inflation. He could do other things, but hyperinflation is never going to happen in Ecuador. Right. This is something else that you wrote in one of your articles where you said that there are three main policies that were implemented by Chavez that produced the crisis that the country is living out today. We talked about the nationalization of private industry. We talked about currency and price controls. And I'm wondering if you could speak to the third and for me, probably the most fiscally irresponsible one, which is the massive the massive expansion of bloated welfare programs, the Bolivarian missions. Yes. So the Bolivarian missions came to be widely supported initially, perhaps even today. I'm not sure. We need to see what's public opinion around it. But they are government programs of things such as building apartments for people for free, uh, trying to give them an education outside of the traditional schooling system, which is already free, uh, trying to give them health, free health care, which was already free, but they just wanted to, in some sorts, expand it with mobile hospitals in border areas, um, bringing Cuban doctors. Uh, and that's just, you know, the main three, but there are hundreds of different programs. Some are for literacy. And in name, it all sounds good, right? We're going to promote housing. We're going to promote education. We're going to promote healthcare. However, there are many problems with this. <laughs> One of them is that, they are actually tools for buying votes and used as political tools to take them away from people who vote against the government or, or threaten them with that. So that's, that's already a big problem. Economically, the problem with the programs is that they spent so much money on them. And part of it was because of corruption. Now, some people on the left might say, well, if we had just had a non-corrupt government in Venezuela, the missions would have worked. That's what some people have told me. And, you know, I tell them, but the whole problem with this is that the government will always have an incentive to be corrupt. And good luck getting corruption out in a Latin American country, right? This is not Norway. <laughs> this is not Switzerland. This is not, not even in the United States, right? Um, so the, the missions were a failure. Venezuelans did not build more housing because of them, because the, the destruction of private incentives led to less private construction, even though there was more government construction. Government did not build good quality housing. Government did not increase literacy. They did not increase educational standards because everybody who had an education left. And most of the educational programs were things like the Bolivarian universities, which are degrees that are in name only. Nobody respects anybody with a degree from one of the missions, unfortunately, because they don't actually give a quality education. They just care about increasing the numbers of the people who get there. So they just want to say they gave 100,000 degrees, even if they're worthless. I think that lack of quality is also apparent in all or throughout all of the Bolivarian missions as a whole, because as you rightly stated, not only did they create gross incentives or corruption, but also from a basic economic standpoint, when you have thousands of Bolivarian missions, you need the money to sustain it. And these Bolivarian missions were sustained by oil revenues, which are captured by these state enterprises, namely PDVSA. 
And so they were collected by the government and they were allocated towards public investment and social spending. But once the money ran out, when the price of oil crashed, it naturally led to a collapse of the programs that were maintained by the oil rents, right? Yes, that's part of it. But the other part was that they really need never had the money to sustain it even with high oil prices. And you could see that just by looking at what happened with maintenance and production. And part of it was that a lot of the money that the government received was drained by obviously stealing, which would have happened uh, in any case. Mm -hmm. But a, a big part of it was drained by the nationalized companies. So Companies like Los Andes, which was one of the biggest, you know, most famous cases, they produced things like milk, like juices, uh, packaging, things like that. They were very popular. Once they, companies, private companies were nationalized in Venezuela, the government usually doubled the, the number of workers. So they hired more workers and production usually went down, even though they hired more workers uh, because they had no really incentive to produce. The goal of hiring more workers uh, was just to get them hooked on government benefits so that they would be forced to vote for Chavez, so that they would be slaves, basically, to the government. So that's what happened with nationalizations and that, you know, somebody had to pay their wages, and that was PDVSA. And so that's where a lot of the money went. Uh, the government increased the number of public employees by millions in Venezuela. It's incredible the number of people who end up working for the government directly or indirectly. My parents technically were became indirect government employees because we were paid by PDVSA, right? Even though we were private employees before. So that that's that's a big problem. They decrease so to, to pay for those things, they decrease maintenance of PDVSA's refineries, of the oil wells, of everything. Uh, electricity infrastructure, which was also nationalized, of the water infrastructure, which was also nationalized. So all that lack of maintenance for over a decade of Chavez ruling meant decreased oil production, blackouts, uh, shortage of water, all of which I experienced firsthand, right? I didn't have electricity very often in, in my home. I lost water much more often. You know, even when doing my interviews for, for college to come here, I, I was afraid I would lose the power. I didn't have water when I was doing it. Usually water went out for weeks. It was crazy. We had to buy it for ourselves and bring it home. Wow. Uh, and so all of this was a consequence of Chavez's policies of overspending. Uh, yeah, it's a long explanation. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, no, no, no. You're, you're perfectly fine. L like we mentioned from the beginning, Daniel, and like I mentioned in, in my first podcast last week, this is a situation... A situation so complex that it really does deserve and require the sort of breakdown that we're providing here, that you're providing here, namely, because that there are so many different causes and so many sad ironies, something that you just brought up. It's such a tragic situation that you're that you're mentioning here where you and your family were suffering from both blackouts and a lack of water. And at the same time, as you had written in one of your articles, Venezuela has a, the largest proven oil reserves in the world to use for electricity, and B, three times more freshwater resources than the United States. So there's absolutely no reason that a family like yours in Venezuela should suffer something like that, or like they are today, even worse. Because I don't know if you know, Daniel, but water service in Venezuela has gotten so bad that residents in poor neighborhoods now have to band together to rig private water systems or actually dig shallow wells with their own bare hands. 
I, I didn't know it was with their own bare hands. That's that I didn't know. Mm -hmm. And there are videos of this. And one of the things that I think frustrates me as someone who wants to spread the truth of the situation in Venezuela is, and I'm sure you've encountered this in your experience, even when we show videos of these instances, even when we show the numbers that prove that these are extremely confirmable cases, there are still individuals who refuse to accept the reality, bury their heads in the sand and say it can't be real. Have you, has that been ex your experience? Yes, I have two experiences that come to mind and I laugh about it because they were obviously American. Uh, you really don't find any Venezuelan who will tell you that uh, the currency controls and price controls and all the things that Chavez did were good anymore. At least you wouldn't find them. Um, but you will find a lot of Americans trying to lecture the people who know on the ground what, what's going on. And I remember this college professor of mine in Indiana uh, he was a, an English professor of a writing class I had. And he told me something like, it's the sanctions that, that caused the problem. Oh. And I told him, you know, I didn't have electricity and water before the sanctions. <laughs> and, and I had to leave the country before the sanctions, you know, in 2016. The real big sanctions came when Trump started in office. Um, Obama just targeted a couple bank accounts. That's all he did. Uh, nothing meaningful to to affect anyone in the country. So I, you know, we ended up discussing a little bit until I told him, you know, you are free to to go to Venezuela and go live my life and I can just stay in your home in the United States. And I told him that in front of the class and he never mentioned that ever again. So that was one experience. And then in another time, I actually wrote a paper based on, on a model that the IMF had, uh, Valerie Serra, who's an economist I really respect uh, at the IMF, the International Monetary Fund. Um, and I adapted her model to talk about how currency controls and price controls affected Venezuela's economy and GDP per capita and things like that. And I was presenting my research in this conference. And this uh, professor, whom I've never met before in my life, you know, I, he hears my presentation together with other people. And he says, so are you saying, he was shocked and, and outraged, are you saying that Venezuela's economy and, and the crisis is caused by the policies and not sanctions? He was, <laughs> yeah, and, and I'm like, well, yeah, that's obviously what the evidence indicates. Uh, I've never seen otherwise. <laughs> and it's just shocking to me that there's people who are so uninformed yet want to have such an authoritative judgment. Yeah, it, it's really, really unfortunate. And that seems to be a recurring theme among everybody that I've spoken to, not just in this podcast, but Venezuelans living here as a whole. Would you say that's probably the greatest or most common misconception in your experience that people have about Venezuela that you find yourself having to debunk more often than not? Well, I think that in the great scheme of things, probably half of Americans from what I've seen on polls about what's going on in other countries of, of their knowledge, most of them, you know, or about half don't even know about what's going on in Venezuela. Um, and of the other half that does know, the overwhelming majority understands that there is a terrible crisis and that it's Maduro's and Chavez's fault. But there is a very loud minority of people, many of whom are actually paid activists by Maduro. You very well know them of, you know, journalists or hack journalists in reality who work for Russia State TV, who work for Chinese mm -hmm. State TV, who works for some of the Arab nations' state TVs like Al Jazeera and things like that. So these are the people who are pushing this narrative. And 
in my opinion, I don't even know how those people are even allowed to push a narrative in this country because I support free speech, but these are not individual citizens with free speech. These are foreign authoritarian governments pushing <laughs> propaganda. Yeah. For my listeners, if you have not heard the episode that I did with Joshua Collins, I highly recommend doing so if you want to hear more about the misconceptions and the deception campaign that is propagated by these so-called journalists that Daniel is referring to, the people who work at Gray Zone, Russia Today. That, that one, one time they called me a, a hack who, who works for the right wing or something in Venezuela and oil money and whatever. They, they wrote an article that it criticized me. They do that with everybody. It's, they basically use that as a, as a broad brush to characterize anybody who disagrees with them as right wing. It's really, really unfortunate. Okay, you know, I, I respect it. I'm, I'm conservative. I, I consider myself on the right. I just think it's funny the tone in which they described me and, and some other comments. It's, you know, they're, they're really a joke. Yeah. And either way, you know, that's a lot of what we talked about today, like you mentioned before, is largely rooted in facts, figures, and statistics that can't really be disputed. And above all else, your life experience. That's why I always tell my fans... <laughs> Excuse me, not my fans. That's why I always tell my friends. That's okay. You have friends too, Raphael. <laughs> yeah, that, that's why I always tell my friends, anybody who listens, I always tell them, look, this is a bipartisan issue because at the end of the day, there are certain things that just are not disputable. And when it comes to the numbers, when it comes to the, the causes, I don't think that that should be painted with an ideological brush. But it is, but it is painted with an ideological brush, uh, Raphael. Because the truth is that many politicians on the left in the United States want to raise the minimum wage. They want to engage in massive increases in government spending. They want to actually control prices of goods and services. And I don't mean that all Democrats want to do that. You know, there are major Democrats, even presidential candidates, not just Bernie Sanders, but others who want national rent control. That, that is a Chavista policy. That is a Venezuelan style of socialism, right? This is not what Denmark does. So that's what really bothers me also, that in this country, some people are pushing the, the ideas of socialism, of Venezuela masquerading as um, some type of Nordic policy, when the Nordic countries have less regulation, less taxes on businesses than the United States. Absolutely. In fact, if you look at the Heritage Foundation and the Economic Freedom Index that they publish every year, these Nordic countries, Denmark, Norway, it actually ranks higher than the United States in terms of economic freedom, right? Yeah, some of them do, not all of them, but all of them are comparable in any case to the United States. And the reasons they are is that even though they are, ha they are less economically free on things like, you know, higher personal taxes for individuals or government healthcare, they are much more capitalist in things like regulation. So America overregulates a lot of things. That goes from food to healthcare to things like, occupations, right? You need a license to exercise one in four occupations in this country. You don't need to do that in most other countries. And that's a huge entry barrier. That is a, a socialist policy in some sense, right? Uh, that restricts the, the freedom of, of to work of people who want to be like barbers or interior designers, which is ridiculous. Now, I have a question, Daniel, switching gears a little bit. When it comes to the situation in Venezuela, the day after Maduro, do you think that Venezuela will have learned its lesson and make a switch towards embracing 
policies that support privatization? Or do you think that we might be doomed to repeat history in cycles? Yeah, that, that's a very good question. Um, what gives me a lot of hope about that is that I've seen the transformation of many people that I know who were previously sympathetic to many of these programs and ideas and have become the most radical capitalists you can ever imagine. Um, so that gives me a lot of hope. It also gives me hope that other countries who trans that transition from socialism to free markets really made, made, a good, made a good job. You know, most of Eastern Europe, Poland, the Czech Republic, uh, Yugoslavia, um, you know, the, the Baltic countries did a terrific job too. Those countries did well. What I'm concerned is that Venezuela could become some kind of Russia or Ukraine uh, or some kind of uh, Central Asian nation, right? That is, wants to transition out of socialism, but does the privatizations wrong or doesn't do all the reforms they need to. And that would be a huge problem. Uh, and I think that that's what we would be headed to if people like the, the mood you know, the Democratic Unity Roundtable that Guaido and, and his team were in power because they don't really want to privatize the things. They just want to open some of them. They don't really want to end all the welfare programs like they currently are. They just want to reform them. They don't really want to end price controls and currency controls. They just want to do it gradually. And you saw what happened in Argentina, Rafael. You saw what happened with Macri, who wanted to take a gradual approach at things. He lost because gradual measures produce gradual results, which means that the economy is going to be in shambles by the next election and then a socialist is going to win again and the country is going to go back to the starting point. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And I think because in Latin America, we're so susceptible to really like a political pendulum, it's very easy for people to be swayed by populist sentiments which is why people were like Chavez were able to win in the first place. I wanted to go back, Daniel, to something that you had mentioned before about the mood. Uh, just for the sake of exposition, I want to quickly explain to my listeners, and while I have you on here so that you can correct me if I'm wrong, the mood is, like you said, basically the democratic unity table, and it represents a coalition of opposition parties in Venezuela that stand in opposition to the uh, Socialist Party of Venezuela. And one of the common critiques that I hear from people in Venezuela who are not a part of that coalition and also, of course, are not Chavistas is, as you had mentioned before, that they advocate for policies that aren't too different from the ones that are currently in place in Venezuela. So I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit more on that for our listeners so that they understand where you're coming from. Yeah, if you read the plans of the of Guaido, his plan, the what they call Plan País, country plan country, I guess, would be the translation to English. <laughs> the plan is basically in simple terms: they're gonna get money from the IMF, uh, billions of dollars, and they're gonna use that to help people. And that's basically the whole plan they have. And they're gonna open things to private investment, which is good. I accept that's good, but it's not enough. And that's definitely not going to solve Venezuela's economic problems. Venezuela needs to scratch everything and start over. That's what Venezuela needs. Venezuela cannot even have this constitution that, in my opinion, was illegal in the first place. Um, mm -hmm. But we can have another discussion about the constitutionality. Um, that a constitution that says the government is the owner, is the, yeah, is the owner of everything below ground. 
we need private property like the United States. That's the basis. I'm not saying we don't need to help the poor. I support helping the poor and the needy. But there are good ways to do it and bad ways to do it. Uh, the missions are bad. Uh, it's bad to regulate prices. It's bad to nationalize businesses. Give everything to the private sector. Um, absolutely everything except the police, basically, and, and, and perhaps the hospitals and, and the schools because we already have them, although we can have a discussion about that too. <laughs> and, and just help the poor with humanitarian aid with, from, from international countries as we transition. And then you'll see how the economy flourishes and then people won't even need the aid because they'll have meaningful work like in the rest of the world. And, and the, the, the democratic or the, in, you know, in the people who claim to be in the democratic parties or opposition in Venezuela, they, they are not really pro-free markets. None of them, except perhaps Maria Corina or, you know, Inventa Venezuela, they're not, they're not part of the uni, democratic unity roundtable. Uh, none of them support free markets except for her. And I'm afraid that the people who hold the international recognition are these people who are not free markets. So I'm afraid that if they ever get into power, which I even doubt they will, uh, if they ever get into power, they will never solve Venezuela's problems. It will be better than the status quo, but we will never become what I want Venezuela to become, which is a very rich and prosperous country. Right. Like you say, while the immediate assistance of humanitarian aid is of the utmost priority once Maduro is out of office in whatever form that takes shape, for the long term growth and stability of the country, humanitarian aid isn't going to be enough. Practically every institution, both political and economic, are in shambles and are in complete need of repair. And so that suggests a need to cement and not recycle reforms and reconstruction. And for my listeners, um, maybe you could speak on this a little bit more. Vente Venezuela is a political party that's uh, headed by... Maria Corina Machado, who is a deputy in the National Assembly, or she was, or what's her position now? She was, and then she was barred, and she can't hold office, so she's just the leader of the party. Okay, yeah, that unfortunately, that's not surprising. They've persecuted everybody politically at this point, and so it makes things much more difficult for people who want to make substantial change. Um, with that, Daniel, I have a couple of more questions. I want to get your opinion on the current situation of, of the opposition movement and its efforts to remove Maduro. So Guaido has the support of the Trump administration, which is good, but it seems like we are in the exact same place that we were just last year. And I know how frustrating it can be to Venezuelans who are either in exile or just left the country for whatever reason whatever the reason may be, but because we find ourselves in a political impasse, what would you say is maybe the biggest obstacle or has been the biggest setback that has prevented us from breaking this barrier to see some real momentum in this effort to oust him? Yeah, the, the biggest setback, and it's and this setback is the, the consequence of the interest of two specific groups that I'm going to mention. Uh, the biggest setback is that people think that they're going to be able to solve this peacefully, uh, and that's never going to happen. Venezuela, unfortunately, you know, I wish it could be solved peacefully. You know, that's what I wish the most. But when I say peacefully, I mean, you know, without the use of military force. And that, unfortunately, is going to need to happen if Venezuela is ever going to be free, because there is no way to persuade these criminals in power, the regime members, 
you know, that includes the military, that includes all the gang members, which are part of the military too. So Mm -hmm. um, everybody who's part of the Maduro government, all of them know that in a future democratic Venezuela, they are going to be persecuted. Even if we promise them today they're not Rafael, which look, I'm very willing to promise them that they won't be persecuted and that they can leave to Cuba with the goal of getting Venezuela free. Because this is not even about justice anymore. Of course I want justice, but I'd rather stop people from starving to death, you know? Right. So that's my main, my utmost goal. I, you know, the State Department uh, and the Venezuelan Democratic Unity Roundtable, why don't, they don't understand that. They think that some people within the Maduro regime can, can are, are, trust, are to be trusted and that you can negotiate with them. And that's why they tried what they tried on April 30th last year in 2019, where they tried to negotiate with, um, with, with the Minister of Defense, where they tried to negotiate with the fake Supreme Court, and it didn't work. And it's never going to work because these people know that there's never going to be, no matter what we tell them, they are not guaranteed. And even if they were guaranteed to, to not be persecuted, they can continue in power and keep stealing money. They don't have moral values. They don't care if people die, people starve. They don't care if there are millions of refugees. So moral arguments won't work. These are not these are people who care about their own selfish interests and that's it. And I think that the State Department doesn't recognize that. They think this is just another group of regular people you can talk to. And that's not the case. These are terrorists. Well, to their credit, the the State Department or at least those at, uh, at the Southern Command of the United States military are taking notice that these are, as you mentioned before, terrorists, uh, people who don't have any intention to surrender. And I would argue that's probably why there are several members of Maduro's inner cabinet who are now designated or who are on the top of the FBI's most wanted list with prices on their head of upwards to $15 million. But I would agree with you that way more people need to be on that list because these people only know strength. Yeah, but, but it's, not, it's not even about just being on a list. Um, when I say force, I mean that I don't mean an invasion, right? Uh, because, you know, I think that that would have a huge cost, not not because it wouldn't be worth it, but because I don't think it's politically feasible for, for Americans. But there are many other types of use of military force that don't require a land invasion. You know, that, that, that doesn't include just the what's happening right now in the Caribbean, but it includes just going and capturing the, these criminals when they get out of Venezuela or even inside Venezuela sending special teams to capture them and, and take them out or use their families in the United States, many of which have their wives, their children living here. Use them as leverage. These are criminals too. Take them into custody and tell them that if they want them released, they need to cooperate with the United States government to throw uh, Maduro out. That's what I think needs to happen. So we need an aggressive and creative approach to, to overthrowing them. Sanctions are never going to do it, just like they didn't do it with Cuba. I'm not saying that sanctions are, are bad. You know, they obviously reduce the income of the regime and that means they can do less criminal activities, but they're never going to overthrow it. And my goal is to overthrow them. What role do you think that the international community can play in helping topple the regime, specifically the, the countries that make up the Organization of American States? Because they have just as much, if not more, at stake with Maduro clinging onto power 
with waves and waves of, of immigrants flowing into their countries and less so in the United States. Yeah, obviously, especially Colombia is, has a lot at stake. Uh, they, they should have done something about this a long time ago. I personally think that the best time to, to have done something was on February 23rd last year in 2019 when it was the crisis of humanitarian aid. And there was a lot of momentum behind Guaido. So we had a lot of international attention. Uh, I, you know, I, I didn't know how many interviews I did that day and the days before that and after that. It was something like I kept getting calls and calls and calls from national TV outlets because they wanted to know what was happening. And that, that just shows how much attention we had. Today, I don't get as many calls as back then, of course. And so I think that at that moment when Maduro stopped the humanitarian aid, that's when Colombia should have said, no, you know what? We're going to get our trucks or and our members of the Colombian military and we're going to score the humanitarian aid in. And the Venezuelan soldiers are never going to do anything against them. They're never going to do anything against them because they're cowards. You saw what happened with the drone that exploded in the, in the sky. This is so, it's a, it's a facade. It's a fake facade. It's not real power that they hold the military. They just hold guns. And of course, they can beat unarmed protesters, but they can't beat a foreign military. They absolutely can't. A lot of what they do is for show. And for reference for my listeners, yeah, there was a drone attack on, um, I can't remember what month it was, but it was in 2018, where I think it was basically an assassination attempt on Maduro. And it was during a march and he was being shielded. But Venezuelan troops, basically, when it comes to the fight or flight syndrome, they chose the latter instead of the former. And so they retreated like like school children. They, they run. They run away. It was hilarious. So you're right. I think that that is a very telling sign. And it should give confidence not just to Colombia, but also other countries in the region that would maybe be interested in one one military incursion that would be supported maybe by a coalition of the willing inside the OAS because there's historical precedent for doing so. The OAS has coordinated land invasions in places like Granada, in the Dominican Republic to topple dictators that really are on a grand scale, a microcosm compared to what Maduro has done to Venezuela in the last 10, 20 years, Chavez included. Now, yeah, you know, I think the problem with all of this is that while I think that this is the right course, and unfortunately, I think it's also not just the right, but the only course to overthrow them. And I don't see the willingness from the Venezuelan interim government to even ask for that, you know, People mock and then they say, you know, of course they did. Nobody wants that. This is not like asking for pizza, says Waido. But <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I know, I know they have never even asked for that. I know what they have asked for is sanctions. And sometimes they want less sanctions. You know, all the corruption scandals with people like Alejandro Betancourt, who gave money uh, to lobby against sanctions and many members of the Venezuelan uh, Democratic Unity Roundtable were involved with members of parliament. Then Guaido's father met with Alejandro Betancourt in Madrid. What is Guaido's father doing with this corrupt official sought by the United States for money laundering? Um, there are a lot of suspicious things going on, Rafael. And we will never perhaps know the full truth, but you know when things are shady. And here things are shady. And 
when you see all of this corruption, all of this interest lined up, why does mockery of even the suggestion of use of military force? I've been yelled at by people like Carlos Vecchio for merely suggesting that we could use military force. Really? Oh, yeah, in Washington, D.C. last summer. Uh, and, and this was in public, so everybody who was there knows it, and there was a video, too, uh, that is around there. Oh, and for my listeners, before I forget, Carlos Vecchio is the uh, the ambassador or the charge of the affairs, whatever you want to call it, uh, for, the, for the interim government of Guaido to the United States. So I, I have that experience to tell you that, and then I also have the experience of having met with Trump himself and, and talking about these issues. And then I also have what was revealed by, by Bolton, which unfortunately, you know, it was just a confirmation of what I already believed. I wish I had known more. It was that Trump was indeed willing to help uh, militarily and ask for options, but not just was never mentioned that Guaido ever asked for anything, but Bolton himself tried to block it and other people in the government tried to block it because the State Department, because most people who are career government officials don't want to get involved in a foreign country. And that's all right. That's their opinion. But the point is that they're not the president of the United States. Donald Trump is the president of the United States. And so they basically blocked his agenda uh, on purpose. And that's, that's worrisome. You know, it just makes me feel like we lost this golden opportunity in the last two years to overthrow the regime because we had the media, you know, the media momentum. We had the people momentum in the street. We had countries uh, abroad recognizing Guaido and an interim government. But what, what did we use with that time? What did we use? We had Guaido who never asked for anything other than sanctions and perhaps even wanted them to, to go slower. People who wanted to negotiate rather than force them out. And what did we get for that? Nothing. People are starving. People are worse than two years ago. Correct. Something really does need to be done. And I don't know. It, it's hard to say what can happen from here until the end of the year. But if the UN is right in their estimations, Venezuela's refugee crisis will eclipse that of Syria's by year's end, making the mass exodus not only the largest in the hemisphere, but in the world. So if nothing is done, then a lot of this is going to overflow into our backyard. So the sooner we, the sooner we respond to it, the better. Yeah, um, I know this is a sad topic uh, because you know people are having a really hard time. But I like to also show a positive thing. You know, I guess that you can always get from this, and is that Venezuela showed the world that socialism and the destruction that it brings doesn't just come by the way of revolution, uh, like in Cuba by force. It also comes by the way of election, because initially Chavez was legitimately, legitimately elected. And then that changed, right? Then they cheated and, and that's how he maintained power. But he was legitimately elected at first, even you know the first couple of elections in reality. So if that can happen in Venezuela, a country of immigrants, a country that was prosperous, of course, not the best, not the richest country in the world, but one, one that was pretty well off, then it can happen anywhere. And that's why I think that this is a lesson not just for Venezuelans, once we regain our freedom, which you know at some point it will happen, perhaps not in the near future, but it's a lesson for the rest of the world to not fall for the same lies of socialism. It is a silver lining as a 
as a point for learning and is probably the perfect case study to reinforce this notion that when it comes to socialism, you vote your way in, but you shoot your way out. So with that, Daniel, very, I want- good, very good, very good quote. I like that. <laughs> Thank you. I forgot where I, le- where I read it, but it hit home, let's say, and I'm sure you can understand where I'm coming from. Yeah, 100%. I agree with it. So what steps do you think, Daniel, could be taken while things play out and we're in this impasse for our listeners? If they have a role that they want to play, what steps can be taken to maybe fight back against this overwhelming disinformation campaign that seems to want to cheapen really the evil that is running rampant in Venezuela as we speak? You mean the disinformation campaign about what's going on in Venezuela? Yes, absolutely. Well, I I like to say that everybody can have an impact by doing everyday or having everyday conversations with others about why why Venezuela went the way it went. Of course, we're in a quarantine and now that's harder. But for me, every time I stepped into an Uber, I talked to the driver, oh, you know, Harry, where are you from? You know, that's always a usual conversation, right? And I say, I'm from Venezuela. And then I talked about Venezuela, right? And I've... You know, I say that we are evangelizers of the free market <laughs> and, <laughs> and that's what we do. And, and we can do that with our friends, with our family, with strangers. Just make sure that you, you're cordial, you research well your arguments and, and you are trying genuinely to persuade and have good conversations. They might disagree with you, but you will show them a different point of view and they're not going to think the same after talking with someone who experienced it firsthand. So Venezuelans have a lot to contribute to the rest of the world by sharing their experiences. Yes, we absolutely do. Each and every one of us has a role to play in all of this and advancing this idea that what is going on in the country is wrong and history cannot repeat itself in the way that it's playing out today. And I have to commend you. You've done a lot of work and contributed a lot of these ideas to a lot of op-eds, articles, interviews. And so with that, I want to ask, where can our listeners find you if they want to learn more about your story and read your insights? Yeah, well, they can find me on Twitter at Daniel DiMartino. And then they can find me on my website, DanielDiMartino.com. My my name is just Daniel and then DiMartino, it's D-I space M-A-R-T-I-N-O. Of course, in the website and my Twitter handle, there's no spaces. And, you know, I'm all, I also have a Facebook page. I have an Instagram. All is Daniel Martino, so it's easy to find me. And, yeah, check out my, my appearances on TV. I, I speak at different conferences. Uh, things are slower because of the pandemic, especially in the speaking circuit in person. But things are starting back up, and I have another speaking engagement soon in August. Um, so, God forbid, coronavirus, and that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, God forbid. So yeah, if you want to keep up with Daniel and follow his work, you can follow him on Twitter. The handle again is at Daniel DiMartino. I'll have it up on the episode description and at his website at DanielDiMartino.com. Daniel, again, I want to thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Rafael. I really had a good time talking to you. Likewise. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning into the State of Venezuela podcast. I hope you enjoyed hearing the story of our country as much as I enjoyed sharing it. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever podcast streaming platform you use. 
I'd also be grateful if you could leave a review and share it with anyone who might be interested in learning more about Venezuela as well. Finally, if you have any thoughts on today's episode or topics you'd like me to cover in future episodes, drop a comment or send me an email at stateofvenezuela at gmail.com. Thanks again. See you all in the next one.